Thanks for listening to The Derivative. This podcast is provided for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as legal, business, investment, or tax advice. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own opinions and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of RCM Alternatives, their affiliates, or companies featured. Due to industry regulations, participants on this podcast are instructed not to make specific trade recommendations nor reference past or potential profits, and listeners are reminded that managed futures, commodity trading, and other alternative investments are complex and carry a risk of substantial losses. As such, they are not suitable for all investors. Welcome to The Derivative by RCM Alternatives, where we dive into what makes alternative investments go, analyze the strategies of unique hedge fund managers, and chat with interesting guests from across the investment world. The implication from that is we have bubbles that are too big to fail. And because they're too big to fail, the next decade is, if I had to summarize in one sentence, is the transformation of bubbles into inflation. And it's it's something that, again, I was calling in the middle of COVID and, and even before everybody was, you know, depression and the end of the world and, and hyper deflation. And look, guys, uh, we knew central banks in some way were going to come in. We didn't expect necessarily the speed and the size and whatever and how far they've gone. But yes, there are lots of deflationary pressures, you know, economic activity, unemployment, technology, demographics, uh, you know, overcapacity, malinvestment. All these things are deflationary. Yes, granted. But there's one force called money printing, which offsets these and more by a long way. So you create this perception of stability. You think, oh, things are stable. No, they're not. You have effectively things collapsing, inflation rampant. All right. Happy New Year, everyone. We've turned the page, but we're still in an era where global policy can change with a tweet. The pandemic is still not under control and stock markets are still at all time highs and bond yields at all time lows. So we're excited to have as our first guest in the new year, a man who can talk global macro, volatility, bond yields, correlation, oil, metals and more. We have Diego Perea, managing partner at Quadriga Asset Management. Uh, or is it asset managers, sorry, who not only heads up the team over at Quadriga, but is also an accomplished author, economist, and linguist. So thanks for joining us, Diego. My pleasure, Jeff. Thank you for my, so much for having me. And in today's Zoom world, you're calling in from Madrid, right? That's right. And you, you just mentioned before we got started, it might snow there this week? Yeah, it's um, unusually cold. Um, yeah, snow. But... I've never, I didn't know, even know that was possible. <laughs> Yeah, Madrid is, uh, I think it's about 700 meters high. It's in a plateau and it's it's lovely weather, pretty dry, but, you know, it can get cold as well. <laughs> yeah, I've been uh, a couple of times. We do some business with a guy, you know, actually at a eye broker. But um, yeah, I'll have to get back and we'll we'll have a have a cerveza or something. I love what I love about Spain the most is there's no in America, right? You say you want a beer. And there's like, which one of these 40 types <laughs> in Spain, you just, they have one beer on tap and that's what you get. Yeah. The, the flip side is if, if you ask for wine, they'll, they'll show you 40 and you go somewhere <laughs> else and, and they only have one wine. So that's granularity for you. <laughs> yeah. And how are things there with the, did you guys just go back into lockdown? It's been, um, 
moderate. Um, you know, we have a curfew. I mean, lockdown. The, the, the restaurants are open, but you know, over the holidays, been uh, closed at midnight. And uh, you could actually during the festive days, you could you could even go later, 1 a.m. And they restricted the number of people, but at least things are somewhat normal. Uh, although, you know, the, the pickup of uh, infections is, is, is going up. So I think across Europe, we're starting to see things tightening up. But I must say Madrid feels, you know, quiet, but uh, somewhat within some degree of normality. So we've been going to museums and going to restaurants, even if that meant there were yeah. less people around. Yeah, we the Chicago museums are still closed. Still pretty abnormal here in Chicago, but hopefully get the Good vaccine luck. spread around and back going. Uh, and so you're a former competitive football and tennis player. I'm assuming that's not American <laughs> football. Tw- Twenty kilos ago, uh, soccer. Kilos ago. <laughs> Which... Yeah, we we have some uh, professionals, former professionals in the family, and uh, no, uh, we yeah. There's, I think soccer, you know, most, most Spanish people have some familiarity. Some of us have played a higher level, but yeah, it was um, a lot of fun to, to play internationally with university and, and also competitively here in Spain. And yeah, very passionate about sports um, in, in many ways. And, and there's even uh, lots of lessons to be applied and learned into into markets. I think as you as you look through. So this will be the work of a future book, which we may talk about uh, oh, some nice. other time. <laughs> yeah. Uh, what position were you? Uh, I've always played offensive, um, kind of striker, but um, but yeah, number ten, I guess. Yeah, the false For those nine. Those familiar with it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> A little bit. Uh, I coached my son's team, and then I played in high school. Then chose American football in college. I think, it, looking back, I would have should have chosen soccer in college. But uh, that's neither here nor there. And then you're also fluent in a couple languages. How many? Well, I'm, I'm obviously Spanish. Uh, I lived and studied in France and the U.S. Um, and lived in the UK for a long time. Um, I lived in Singapore and picked up Chinese, which I can uh, talk a little bit, uh, studying with my kids and, you know, Italian. So I, I just love it. It's one of my yeah. passions. Uh, the, the first one is the hardest. The second one is tough. Uh, I think after the third, it sort of comes, I think your brain gives up <laughs> and, and picks them up a little bit more easily. Yeah, I'm always amazed, you know, Americans just don't have that in their psyche of learn the different languages. I think it's a failing of our American society overall of like, it should be front and center. You know, we kind of have Spanish or French in schools, but it should be a little more important to our schooling system, I think. I think um, it's, uh, it's very much part of uh, culture, you know, and, and if you get to experience in, in a country, I think, you know, you, you get to to really go far deeper than you would if, if you communicate in English. Um, but you're, you're lucky that you, you don't have to learn those languages for many of us is yeah. a necessity, but, uh, but yeah, it's, kind of, I view it as unlucky. It's I would fun. have rather, it's fun. I would have rather had to. Um, so how'd you get from athlete to 
into the market. That was the, <laughs> some of the first. I've always, been, I've always been amateur. I mean, I've been a tennis coach and, comp and competed, but I, I wouldn't would consider myself a, a professional, even if I got paid. Um, and never really at that high level. But uh, I'm a, from a family of, of engineers. I followed my my dad's um, tradition into mining and energy. I I was very lucky. I finished uh, top of my university and, and got a scholarship to study uh, my master's in France at the in, in the French Institute of Petroleum and the Colorado School of Mines in Golden. So I did my thesis in mineral economics, and uh, I specialized in something called real options, which back in the mid late '90s was a very new thing, and um, and that gave me the opportunity to. To, to pick up a job with um, in the markets. Um, what, what were those rail options? Real, real. Like, uh, yeah, just to give you a sense, my uh, professor, which greatly influenced my 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 thinking, um, uh, basically would describe uh, uh, a lettuce as the right, but not the obligation to have a salad. You know, it's effectively a call option on a salad, and that. <laughs> that idea of everything in life is is uh, is an option is uh, is fascinating and and the, you know if you dig deeper and in, in, into the theory and, and you apply it uh, life is it's all about options so I think there's a lot of um, uh, added value I think in understanding uh, options theory and options trading uh, as part of everyday to day decisions uh, that that we make. Yeah, you'll like this quick story of a, a prop firm here in Chicago. The owner thinks in total optionality, everything he sees. And so they ended up buying a, a uh, I can't remember the team, but one of the Premier League teams. But when they were in the third division, and basically he saw the optionality of like, the, if these t new TV rights get going, if they get promoted to the second league, you know, he was doing the math and this could be worth. So I think they bought in for... You know, it was like a 10 or 20x trade from where they bought it. And the TV rights came in, they got promoted. Um, and then they eventually ended up selling it. But yeah, you'd think people buying soccer teams would be vanity trade or something. But he was just seeing all the optionality. So I, I even describe books as options, right? You, you buy it, you, uh, you spend, you know, whatever, $10.00 nobody's gonna force you to read it but that's the premium spent and the payout of of a good book could be worth tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of, of, of dollars so everything i think it's uh relationships you know uh, every decision you make i think it's anything that is asymmetric uh, gives you this optionality and, and yeah it's I know we use the lingo and, and, and Vegas and deltas and things, but it's it's what it is. It's probabilistic, and uh, I think it's it's helpful for for decision making and, and risk management. Yeah. So you went from so Colorado School of Mines, French Institute of Petroleum. Then you say so you got hired where? J.P. Morgan in London. Okay. That was um, it was an interesting time. It was it was sort of mid late nineties, so ten dollar oil, two hundred and fifty dollar gold, and it was a time when most of the banks were actually exiting commodity markets, uh, emerging market crisis, Russian default, and every bank was sort of wondering why are we in this game, and and JP 
uh, actually kept precious metals. So even if my background was more in the energy space, I, um, I joined the foreign exchange and, and precious metals uh, division. And, and that was actually a very valuable thing. Uh, the, the link is, is to me, it was, it was great. And, and that triangle of energy, uh, precious metals and effects macro, it's really where I've gravitated most of my, my career in, in different functions uh, across you know, trading and, and, and managing teams and selling and structuring. And um, yeah, in different, different regions, uh, I was lucky to, to um, work for some of the best teams out there, like uh, Goldman's commodities team was phenomenal. Um, and, and then I, I had uh, global responsibilities with Merrill. And so I've been very blessed. I've been able to, to, to build these businesses in multiple dimensions across London, you know, New York, Singapore, uh, globally. Uh, so I, I did my two decades around the world before I finally made it back home. <laughs> yeah. I never, I never worked before. And then, and I, in, the, in that process, I transitioned from investment banking to, um, to the to the hedge fund world with my own firm and then with some large macros. Uh, in those JP and Goldman, all those, were you structuring trades for big commercials, or what? What were the trades looking like that you were doing on those desks? I started out as a as a market maker of uh, precious metals derivatives, and effectively, you you had the obligation to to make markets on on certain uh under lines and, and payoffs and as part of that we were very closely involved in structuring solutions both for uh investors and corporate clients and for corporate clients you have both consumer producer and, and and refiners so yeah those those roles give you a tremendous amount of uh, a very rounded vision of the industry, of all the players, of the hedge funds, of the specs, of the consumers, of the physical. And, and I think these building blocks actually add up. And, and once you understand effects, for example, moving into pressures, there are lots of similarities with effects. There are some nuisances of, of the physical commodity markets. And over the years, as you complement that with energy and storage and contangos, and you know, it, it, it all—it's all the same. The same building blocks. Uh, things just change slightly. We've been involved in uh, in providing solutions. Some of them quite innovative. Uh, you know, in, and I have several cases in my career where I've been very blessed to to be able to to develop those solutions. Um, both on the investor so, as well as the corporate side. Got it. So you weren't necessarily on the other side of all these big hedge funds trades or whatnot. You were just providing the market maker service, as it were, hedging out the book for the bank. Yeah, that's right. I mean, you provide ideas, you provide liquidity, you execute. Um, but it's not just hedge funds. You have, uh, you know, very often the opportunity or the acts that, it, that you might have in the book comes from, let's say, a, a consumer buying and that gives you the opportunity to be more competitive with a producer that wants to, to sell or, or whatever. Um, so I think this is all, all trying to, you know, facilitate liquidity and solutions across players and, and hedge funds, you know, 
have been very helpful in, in providing very often that curve exposure or volatility or volume that, that you couldn't accommodate yourself for risk limits or you know differences in timing with, with this market. So that, that source of risk premium has been a very fascinating area of uh, the opportunities in the commodity space because of yeah. the extreme volatility and many degrees of freedom that we have relative to to other markets you know our, our forward curves are much more dynamic and alive and and the volatility and seasonality and and, and physical constraints so it's it's a great school i think for and, and there's been some very big traders that come from the commodities uh, school including lloyd blankfein or, yeah. or gary cohen which is today in the news, I think he's been appointed vice chairman of IBM. He was the uh, aluminum trader at Goldman, you know. Oh, really? Uh, yeah. So he's uh, he knows one thing or two about commodity markets. <laughs> <laughs> and so then somewhere in there, you found time to write two books? Yeah, I think this is... Um, it's it's a very I mean I look back it's a bit like climbing a mountain you know you, you you're doing it and, and and when you look back you realize you know what you've achieved but it's um it's something that came quite naturally I I, I had I always say that you know you, you think you know it but until you put it in writing you don't really realize how 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 well or how badly you know it and and I think you you know I think it was Cicero who said, if you want to learn, teach, I, I would say, if you want to learn, write. I think those two books have been incredibly educational for me, uh, first and foremost. And just the process of structuring your own ideas, uh, you know, putting together the, the thesis, etc., was super powerful. And it's a discipline that I've, I've kept and that I hope... Um, as you said, you use the word. Did you find time? I mean, it's it's the the ideas are there. Are there. It, it it's something that requires a significant amount of investment and effort. But but I strongly recommend that you know everybody pursues their passion and writes about what something they care about because you you will find that you learn an incredible amount and and sometimes you're able to to help people you know which has been yeah. very very uh, touching you know to to continue to get you know, strong, positive feedback from people that have had a, a positive experience and they learned something from, from that. So uh, I, I, it's, it's something I'm really proud of. Um, it was a big, yeah, effort, I, I've been trying to write a book for like six years now, so <laughs> I can't find the time to, but I think what you're saying, if it's not, you don't really need the time. If it's stuck in your head and it needs to get out, it's going to get out. Right? Um, but what, what were the two, there's two books, right? Which one was first? First book was called The Energy World is Flat. I co-wrote it with uh, my good friend, Daniel Lacalle, who had um, previous experience writing. And it was, um, it was written in 2014. Um, it took about nine months to, you know, to write. And uh, it was a very uh, contrarian thesis at the time. Um, the, the oil market was about $120. Peak oil theory with 200 oil was consensus, and uh, we were calling for the flattening of the energy world, the, the convergence across energies, the convergence across regions, and um, 
and it didn't take long before <laughs> things uh, did happen and, and the thesis was not only survived, it was actually reinforced. And, and I think this, this framework, this, this is just the way my, I think the, the, the wiring in my, in my brain, you know, is something that uh, I applied to, to a second book. This time uh, the book was called The Anti-Bubbles and also very contrarian at the time. I know the ideas, if you read the book today, they might look more obvious, but you know, it was calling for three to 5,000 gold, very critical of the uh, monetary and fiscal policies without limits. And, and this, uh, you know, effectively process that we've seen accelerate over the last few years. And, uh, and yeah, so both, I would say that they were, if you went to um, an airport to buy it, you could see probably in the science fiction uh, uh, department. <laughs> Uh, and that's then the only department I look in. So. And then, and then slowly they moved into current affairs, and now both I think are going more into history because the history. the the, uh, the the script has played out uh, or is playing out pretty much by the letter. And I'll, so, I'll be sorry to tell you that I went to uh, find it on Apple Books to listen to on my long drive home last night, and it's not on there to listen to. So no audiobooks. Yeah. Uh, um, but so energy world is flat. The concept was, hey, natural gas, solar, everything's going to come up and energy is going to come down and it will just have it as kind of all same price, same demand. What? Yeah, I think the starting point is that energy markets have always been very siloed. So prior to our book, you could find great books on crude oil. You could find great books about coal great books about natural gas, great books and a lot of yeah. work about renewables. But there was no real cross-section uh, uh, because, you know, of, of a number of reasons. The, the flattening, the concept of the flattening of the energy world, it, it, it probably rings the bell to, to many of you. It's, it was actually inspired in, in The World is Flat by, by Friedman, uh, Thomas Friedman, which was a post-mortem analysis of the dot-com bubble. Yeah. And it's a book that I read shortly after the dot-com uh, exploded. It's an uh, interesting time now because we, I think we're relatively close to something similar happening. <laughs> uh, but uh, it, was, it was fascinating, the fact that, uh, you know, as, as we lived through, those of us who lived the, the dot-com in first person, you know, it, it, it kind of had a, a bitter meaning you know we just just gone through the bubble and and this book was fascinating because he was talking about something transformational that happened he said look we had this amazing technology these things called broadband and all these things which is fantastic that basically led to these huge investments which meant the entire oceans were wired with um basically uh, you know broadband fiber and fi fiber optic and stuff on the expectation that you would earn a killing for, for then you would make a fortune on, of that, which effectively led to overcapacity. And that overcapacity meant prices collapsed and investments were written off. And then magic happened because you had an incredible technology in huge size for free. And so pretty much overnight, places like India or China, which had been much more 
um, isolated from from uh, you know the, the th things like outsourcing. You know, if you were an accountant in India, you couldn't dream of yeah. giving your services to someone in in California. So that flattening of the world was actually a really optimistic view, and and in fact, it's it's really what's happened. And so that concept stayed in my mind. And when we saw a few things happening in the energy space, in particular, I mean, the book starts with Fukushima. You know how the uh, effectively the the um, the earthquake, the tsunami, and 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 the nuclear crisis that we had created this massive spike in natural gas prices, you know, which went to about twenty dollars an MBTU, which is one hundred and twenty dollars per barrel equivalent. When the exact same molecules were trading in the U.S. at two dollars an MBTU, so at ten yeah. percent of the price, and and this was because of the other big move, which was fracking, right, and uh, and and shale. So you had this parallel, which was we have this incredible technology, we have this price signal. And so it became fairly clear to me that places like Australia or others would make these huge investments. I mean, even Israel became a, a major energy producer <laughs> because of some findings in, 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 in gas and, and, and natural gas, which had been, for obvious reasons, very much uh, a regional commodity because you have to either build a pipe or yeah. you know, liquefy it, which is a five to 10 billion investment, suddenly you had this major investment. So it, it, the idea was, look, you have the technology, you have this price incentive, you have this huge overcapacity. We will see things like natural gas becoming global the, uh, and, and, and more abundant. And then, you know, this, this creates uh, a number of dynamics, but everybody's very familiar with what I call the battle for supply in the case of energy. So this is, you know, Canadian oil sands competing with fracking, competing with uh, offshore, competing with conventional, with whoever. And, and this is like a civil war between producers. And then uh, what is less well understood is the, is the battle for demand, is the fact that, you know, uh, and, and this is, it, it can lead to people to think that, uh, you know, OPEC, for example, it's it's uh, the success of OPEC is driven is because they have a mon an, an oligopoly of oil. It's like, look, I control the oil, I control the price, and and it's not really true. The reason OPEC was so successful was more because they had a monopoly of demand. So if you wanted to drive your car or a plane or a truck or or a boat, it was oil, 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 oil. You know, gasoline, diesel. So in a world where you have you know, uh, trains that can go on LNG or cars that are electric, you know, effectively that battle for demand is real. And so all these flattening forces, and I think in the book, I, I analyzed about 24, which I, we packaged into, into 10 uh, big forces, uh, effectively reinforce this thesis that, look, the silos are going to break. Energy is going to become more global. And then it, it was pretty clear who the losers and the, and the winners might be and things like oil at 120 bucks, you know, uh, just, it was just a matter of when, not if that oil would collapse. And, and I think we and had you... this, we had this uh, quote, which was uh, at the time it was considered to be outrageous. It was like uh, beyond science fiction, Mad Max, which was, and the last barrel of oil will be worth zero, not millions. 
And at that time, people looked at us saying, are you out of your mind? Yeah, you, know, you were off last... by negative $36. Exactly. <laughs> and, then, and then it went negative. And that's just insane. So, no, I think that process was a lot of fun. I talked about learning earlier. And, and it was fascinating because as, as we have these thesis, you know, it, it's a very humble approach. When you have a thesis, you're already positioning yourself in, in a position of, this is just the thesis. It's, I'm not in possession of the truth. Uh, so you, you're there to be proven wrong. And, and, and as we were throwing basically things like, you know, not gas and whatever to, to the thesis, then you mentioned solar and renewables. It was fascinating because I must admit, I didn't know that much and, uh, at the time. And the question would be, yeah, what, how does renewables fit in the, in the process? And one of the fascinating things is that it not only, it actually reinforced the process and, and it, it things clicked even better. And, 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 we, and we've seen, you know, how the, the flattening of the energy world continues. I, I just bought my first um, electric car, uh, which yeah. I get, I will uh, get delivery on Friday. Nice. And, and I Tesla think it's or a European version. European. <laughs> no, we went for uh, an e-tron, an uh, Audi e-tron. Uh, so, oh, nice. we, so we replaced a, a Q7 for an e-tron, and um, it's it's. Uh, I think we're at that tipping point where you know the the uh, it's it's they've been viewed really like like uh, city cars, and I think we're starting to see the network developing and. Yeah. So look, the flattening continues. All these things that, that we discussed are have have happened in in in, in a number of ways. And but it's a very I mean, dynamic one those, world. One of those things, like you said, looking back, it seems obvious, right? Like in what we feed all our animals here in uh, the United States, if corn gets too expensive, we give them soybeans. If soybean gets too expensive, we give them rice, whatever. So it's like fungible what you can feed them, and you go to the lowest cost. Same thing with American in the world right if beef gets too expensive food people switch to pork if pork gets too expensive they switch to chicken so it's the same thing right like just over a much longer time frame that's you can't exactly switch right your factory in a day like you can at the supermarket but you could switch it in six months 18 months that's 100 percent correct and i think this is this is a major mistake that many oil companies have made i mean people they you know it's happened many times in history right people forget that what we really need nobody needs oil per se you don't need oil i don't need yeah, oil you want power <laughs> you want basically in terms of transportation i want to go from point a to b in the cheapest most reliable most environmentally friendly way possible that's the the ask so but many oil companies they think we need oil and and uh and, and we don't okay if you find a cheaper more reliable abundant cleaner uh way of doing this we will and this is why technology is is at the forefront of of these battles and and these boundaries and it's fascinating and and, and you can see how the the limits you know that might have been you know negative ener energy prices right that immediately creates a massive incentive to to for for batteries and all sorts of accumulation of energy and and other things and and so it's it's fascinating. It's all interrelated. Um, it's it's very fluid, and and as you said, I think it's it's down to us consumers. You know, we have that that choice, and people who don't understand what they're really providing, uh, 
and they get, you know, whether it's Polaroid or Nokia yeah. or, or, or an energy company, uh, if you don't really understand the need, but focus on, on your product, then uh, you probably have a problem. Hey, Nokia did all right. They made a nice sale to Microsoft, right? Um, <laughs> but the product, yeah, became obsolete rather quick. The second book was the same concept, but FX and gold, you're saying? A similar yeah, the, idea is, the idea is similar. I mean, it, to, to me, I guess both books were challenging the state of school. Uh, both books presented a contrarian thesis, which was, um, again, considered science fiction at the time. And uh, in the second book, I challenged this idea that you can actually solve problems by printing money and, and borrowing. Uh, this, this, uh, and and we, we had seen already at the time, you know, uh, negative interest rates being introduced in Europe. And to, what, what challenge, I mean, what, what I found shocking is how they were pushing the boundaries, you know, and, and, and changing the rules of the game. And you sort of wonder, look, is it really as simple as this, you know? Is it, can we really just solve problems, whether it's Lehman or whatever, by literally just printing uh, and, and borrowing? How, how does this end, right? And, and as you start this chess game in, in your head of how do things go from here and, and, and you start uh, pursuing those paths, you, you, know, you, you actually can, can go in multiple directions. But once you push this far enough, uh, you get to, to conclusions like like I did, which was um, a, a paradigm shift, and and that paradigm shift is what happened in the energy markets, which I described earlier. It just it was just a matter of when, not if, and that paradigm shift is it's happened in the last few years and is accelerated with with COVID, and we're in a in a new phase. I mean, if I was to summarize the the previous call it decade of of financial markets. Uh, it's very simple. I think it's the transformation of risk-free interest into interest-free risk. And that's really what we've done. You know, once upon a time, you had a, a, the 10-year bond or the 30-year bond or the 10-year treasury paying you 5%. You had a, this concept called risk-free interest. You get paid 5% for doing nothing, for taking no risk. Uh, you were effectively making real returns because inflation was, was low. And on top of that, if there was a crisis and interest rates went down to zero, your 10-year bond at 5% would make you 50% capital gains. So the entire industry was built upon, yeah, I have, um, uh, that's why I called it, the, you know, for those who follow soccer, I called the bond uh, Beckenbauer. That was right, this very famous German footballer in the, 90, in the 70s. Um, and, and, and yeah, it was a great defender at the time. The guy is 74 years old today. Okay. So the Bund played that, that great defending job. It, it, when it I say you. like a life jacket, you get paid to wear, right? <laughs> exactly. A lot. And, and it will work. And, and that paradigm has changed. There's no such thing as risk for interest anymore. Okay. There's negative interest rates in Europe and, and the U S is on its way. We have, uh, uh, that's in nominal terms. 
we have, I think this week, we've seen 10-year uh, break-evens, inflation, you know, breaking 2% and, you know, deeply negative real yields in, in the U.S. So you are getting paid 90 basis points for your 10-year uh, treasury. You, you think you're making money, but the reality is, is, is your purchase power is being eroded by over 1.1% net, net of inflation. And so, and then on top of that, your defender is no longer there. So that's the entire model, the industry built on 60-40 portfolios. Okay, yeah. I have some equities, some bonds. The idea was, look, I am protected, right? I have my strikers, I have my goalkeepers, my defenders. Now you have, effectively, what you've created is artificially high prices. Artificially low interest rates have created artificially high prices. Anything that it's valued using discounted cash flows, right? Which is most things, right? Uh, if, if, if you are going to receive a cash flow of $100 uh, in one year or 10 years or 30 years or 50 years, with interest rates at 5%, you know, the present value of that thing will be whatever, 60 cents, yeah. uh, 30 cents, 20 cents, 8 cents. Okay, today with interest rates at, at zero, it's 100. So <laughs> any company with, you know, not, not only the present value of those cash flows is artificially high, the desperation for yields and the PEs are so high, the equity duration is so high that the long story short, what we've done in the last decade is we have created these massive bubbles that are now too big to fail. So we're in a situation where the enemy has, has changed. We, the, the rules of the game have changed and central banks uh, somewhat unwillingly or, or, or unknowingly uh, have been forced or, or you know, to, to step in to provide the support that, of course, is trying to prevent the utter collapse of the system. But the only thing it's done is created these bubbles that by now are too big to fail. So we're in a situation where... But it's uh, also too big to fail. So it's like... So a few things there. One, it all, I read an interesting article of like, this is how money should work, right? Like if I want to give someone my money to keep safe and then they give it back to me in five years, shouldn't I pay them something to protect that and give it back to me? Right. It's kind of like the whole concept of me giving you my, my money. You give me interest and then give it back to me safe. seems like, you know, you can turn the whole thing on its head and say that doesn't make sense either, even though that's what we are accustomed to for hundreds of years. Um, it's, look, what we're experiencing, is, there's no other word, is financial bullying. Okay, we are being forced, you know, the, uh, this idea of saving, you know, we are obviously penalizing savers with negative interest yeah. rates. We're forcing people to spend, to invest. Some of it will be needed, some of it and, and, and useful. A lot of it is marginal. A lot of it is highly speculative and, and, and malinvestment. And so we're, we're in a situation that is very fragile. And, and this is not... This is pre-COVID. I mean, we're in a situation where uh, the damage was already done. What, what COVID did, has done is obviously created a, a huge shock that has forced central banks and governments to, to do more of the same. At a, at right, a, we like tripled down on, on what we already had in place. Right? And all but it's done, yeah. That's another good concept of everyone was saying the same things after 2008, right? Like there's too much, we've taken on too much. This is gonna create a huge bubble. And then and we, it, has done. it has, but it's, it's like, if I can sell my artificially inflated stocks and buy gold or buy real assets. So 
you know, to me, like it's artificially inflated, but you can still use those profits to purchase real goods. No, of course. I think th th this goes down to to the wealth effect. Okay, yeah. whoever, you know, uh, we're not going to discuss. I mean, I, I have no interest in in going too deep into Bitcoin whatsoever. But <laughs> I'm of the view that the emperor has no clothes. Okay, and and um, and and there's th these things that you just create. I mean, I was I was offered to do my own crypto for twenty five grand, right? Uh, you can you can you you do your Malik coin tomorrow yes. for twenty five grand. You have your own. It's like okay, so I can do my my own coin, uh, use it for this, and and I'm gonna be a billionaire. Come on, guys, it's it, let's get real. <laughs> it's uh, it's um, it, I, I can see the benefits. I can see the rationale. I know exactly what's happening with the dollar. We know exactly what's happening. We know the problems of fiat. All these things. But at the same time, you know, there are there's money that is created out of thin air because of, uh, you know, Tesla, which, by the way, I think it's, I don't know, adventure to say that we're going to see 20, 30 percent one day move in one of these assets any day. Um, and uh, that money didn't exist. It's, it's not real. It's it's just castles in the air is is a house of cards and and you know multiples of 1400 uh on it's it's just it just doesn't exist but it creates this sense of wealth people feel rich they spend and whatever but we've seen this movie before several times and um but and i think that those tesla options and sold out the money's real you you got the money out of course yeah. it's it's always the uh the, the greater fool right um, yeah 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 so that's the same for many things. I mean, look, we are, I think the point I was trying to make is, first of all, we've gone through a transition where we've, we've gone from risk-free interest to interest-free risk. This, the implication from that is we have bubbles that are too big to fail. And because they're too big to fail, the next decade is, if I had to summarize in one sentence, is the transformation of bubbles into inflation. And it's, it's something that, again, I was calling in the middle of COVID and, and even before everybody was, you know, depression and the end of the world and, and hyper deflation. And look, guys, uh, we knew central banks in some way were going to come in. We didn't expect necessarily the speed and the size and whatever and how far they've gone. But yes, there are lots of deflationary pressures, you know, economic activity, unemployment, technology, demographics, uh, you know, overcapacity, malinvestment, all these things are deflationary. Yes, granted. But there's one force called money printing, which offsets these and more by a long way. So you create this perception of stability. You think, oh, things are stable. No, they're not. <laughs> you have effectively things collapsing, inflation rampant. And, and so what we're starting to see, and I think is something that will accelerate, is precisely to your point that you made just now is, yeah, you can transform these things into real stuff, okay, into real assets, whether it's land or houses or gold. So ultimately, there are things you can print, you know. Uh, yeah, you cannot print, uh, print Bitcoin. Yeah, but you can print, you know, other cryptos. There are, how many? Yeah. There are 10,000 cryptos. I mean, of course, you can yeah. print cryptos. There's <laughs> 10,000 of, of them. So... In that sense, um, look, I think we are in a very, you, very fragile moment. And very, you're saying when I turn those into real assets, that causes real inflation. 
No, inflation, let's, let's define inflation, okay? This is a very simple idea, but it's not, I think, well enough understood. Inflation is not about your house going up or bread going up. Inflation is about the value of the money with which you buy a house and you buy bread going down. And it's a very big difference. Yeah. Okay. If you go to Argentina, if, if I just gave you a bunch of papers from uh, Venezuela, you laugh at me. I mean, the pe- yeah. kids, kids play with it. It's paper. Yeah, okay. Yeah. So those Bolivars were worth something. Those Argentinian pesos were worth something. Those uh, French, I mean, it's the value of the money that is going down. And you don't need to be a genius to realize that the money is going down because we're printing trillions of it. And it's as simple as that. So inflation comes because you have finite things and it's the denominator that is changing. It's, 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 the, it's converging to zero, right? So in a way, this is the reason why equity markets are going up. Of course, they're going up. I mean, there's some degree of, uh, uh, you know, your, your interest rates are low, the units that you sell, everything is worth more. So in a way, the high equity prices are, are a reflection of, of inflation in one way, right? It's, it's asset price inflation. But it, this is the, 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 what some people are shocked. It's like, oh my God, we're in the middle of a crisis. There's all this unemployment and house prices are going up. How is that possible? It's like, dude, it's just yeah. about the amount of money in the system. And that's and what inflation is about. There's separate inflation, right? There's one, the 1% inflation of the top 1% people, I'm saying, not the, of course. not the rate of inflation, but they have their own inflation, right? Of like, Houses in Aspen and private jets and those of kind of, and but the price of bread may be perfectly fine. Um, yeah, I think so inflation anyway. is inflation is going to be it's the single most uh, important asset and risk in the next ten years, and it's it's or, and it's accelerating, and this is um, it's the way out. Okay, think about it. I you know if if I if you took a trillion dollar mortgage, can you afford it? No. At, at, yes, you can. At 0% interest, okay. uh, interest only, you can. Now, you can, I can. Okay. At 0.1%, I cannot. <laughs> okay. Yeah. That's the reason why interest rates are not going up full stop. Okay. And this is, this is the bluff of the central banks. We have this perception that you think you can print and borrow and increase your debt 20-fold or whatever you want. And then everything looks okay because you've printed this money, you've spent, you kept activity, you build bridges and whatever. The reality is you're only able to support that debt because interest rates are artificial. Right. And if interest rates go up and or credit spreads go up, you go bankrupt immediately. A country like Spain you know, which was in the brink of, of collapse and, and had to be pretty much uh, bailed out. You know, as you know, once the 10-year reaches the 7, 7.5%, the cost of servicing the debt is so high that you, can't, you cannot do anything else and you go automatically, it just spirals into, into the abyss, right? So that's kind of a trick, critical point, 7.5% in the 10-year. That's when everybody just goes knock, knock, and <laughs> we need some help, right? And, no. and we were there, and uh, just a few years later, we are borrowing uh, negative interest rates in the 10-year. <laughs> I mean, that is not, 
a reflection of the market. That is a reflection of someone printing trillions of dollars and giving them at artificially cheap levels. So the central bank, the left right, pocket- Your, your economy didn't improve a thousandfold, right? To go from the no, it's all, it's all, to negative rates. No, in fact, the, the, the problem is this, you know, you, you take so much debt and you can afford it because rates are artificially low. At negative interest rates, you and I can take a $10 trillion mortgage. In That's fact- good. What are we negative, buying, an aircraft carrier? Exactly. So at negative, at negative interest rates, you're incentivized to maximize your debt because you're getting paid for taking debt. Yeah. Yeah? Yeah. So, of course, people will do that. And, and of course, countries will do it. And, and Greece and Spain. That doesn't mean that that's the fair value which you should be lending them. It's 100% artificial. Interest rates are artificial. Credit spreads are artificial. Everything's artificial. Valuations are artificial. But it's so big, the problem, that there's no way back. Because and let's you define to... what you mean by artificial. So Ar not Ar tied Ar to reality, you're saying? Not tied to the real supply-demand economics? That's right. That's right. So artificial, yeah, it's, it just means it's not, <laughs> it's not real. It's not a reflection of... If, if, you, if the central bank stepped out, just went to the toilet for 10 minutes and didn't, wasn't there supporting the price. Right. Um, you know, the, the, nobody would, would do this. And we're, nobody getting to, would, we're getting philosophical, but that's why they'll never step out, right? Which is they can't. They can't. But that's why it'll stay inflated perhaps indefinitely, right? And that's Which why... Is, is there a problem if it just stays inflated? Well, this is the thing. That the perception, in fact, the narrative of central banks is... The, you know, for decades, if, if we were talking to our, our grandparents, let's say, the, they, they, they know who the enemy is. <laughs> the enemy is called inflation. Yeah. Because they've seen it, right? And if you talk to an Argentinian person or Venezuelan or whatever. Now, they actually told us that the enemy is deflation. Our friend is inflation. We need more inflation. We want more inflation. We'll do whatever it takes to get this inflation. And, and before you talk about, obviously, a very important point, which is inflation, your inflation is different from mine and from others. CPI is complete yeah. crap. It, it's <laughs> not a reflection of real inflation. And, um, and, and so many, many of these uh, dynamics are, are all uh, uh, related. But ultimately, I think this, this idea that, you know, it, it's, it's incentivizing a lot. So let's say you want to buy a house for, pick a number, you know, $100,000, right? And, and you take a mortgage for, for 99, right? Um, as inflation comes in, in 10 years, your house might be worth 500,000, but your debt is still 99, right? So in a world where interest rates are artificially low, they cannot go up, inflation's coming, it, it leads you into the second wave of inflation. Inflation is, there are two phases, okay? Phase one, is two plus two equals four. So, you know, you print more money, things go up. Yeah. And phase two is inflation expectations. This is when you go to a, a supermarket in Argentina uh, to pick uh, one, and you've seen these pictures of this, you know, where they say bread, a hundred million. Yeah. And then that's nine in the morning, 12 in the morning, scratched 150 million. Yeah. 
Of course, the central bank didn't print 50% more money in that process. People know that that money is worthless and it's just burning in their hands. And once it starts burning your hands, because it becomes very obvious that, you know, inflation is accelerating. Yeah, I don't care to give you 50 million more. Then it creates inflation. It's worth zero anyway. You just, you know. So in a way, this is, this is why 2% is such an important number. Okay. It's not, I, I, I define this in the book as, as the frog in boiling water. Uh, you're probably familiar with what happens. I've never seen it, but I, I understand that if you put up a, a frog yeah. in boiling water, it jumps. But if you put it in mild water and you, and, you, and you increase the temperature, it will die. It will never jump. So we are frogs in, in, the, in the boiling water of inflation. But the if, slow, we got put in the cold water and it's, the heat's been turned up. Exactly. So at 2% per annum, it's not big enough for us to jump. But we've been diluted by 2% per annum officially by, by, by a while, which means that in 10 years, your purchase power has lost over 20%. If you compound that over 20 years or 20, a few 20, 20 odd years, I've stolen 50% of your purchase power in 20 years. Yeah. Okay. Um, 20 years at my age or 20 years, not what it used to be. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it used to be a long time. Now it's yesterday. Right. But, 50% of your money has been stolen by money printing. So that's a 2%. If inflation increases at 5 or 10, you know, very, very quickly, all your uh, money is, is gone. And this is something that, you know, I, was, I, was, I saw a tweet today. Someone was saying, oh, inflation expectations, you know, break-evens in the 10 years above uh, 2% the Fed will hike rates by before the end of the year. I'm sorry, mate. And this is the, this is, if, if you play this game and if you, you, you go by the rules of the game, you take a textbook, any of the books you have uh, there in, 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 in your background, yeah. <laughs> you pick one of those books and it says, if inflation goes up, central banks will hike rates because they need to fight inflation, right? That's, that's what the book says. The reality, is we cannot hike rates because if you hike rates, the entire system collapses. So I've been saying that on here for a while. The real estate guy we had on, I'm like, what? there's no way rates are ever going up. The whole economy is built on low rates. They're not going up. And mm-hmm. I think this is, this is something that when I first wrote about this, um, it was considered science fiction. It's like, okay, guys, the rules of the game have changed. Think about it as you will have zero interest rates and inflation. This is why, for example, I think the 30-year tip even if CPIs or, or break-evens or whatever are, are not a fair reflection of inflation, it's not a bad trade because you have the full um, uh, upside on, on nominal yields plus inflation pickup. So uh, it does make sense to, to play the 30-year the, the tip. Um, do you feel like private lenders and right like groups will split from the Fed and say like, hey, I've got to make a return here. I know the real risk. I'm going to raise rates myself. Or that's a losing game because they well, uh, you have two components, right? You have the actual interest rate or three. Interest rate, credit spread, and inflation, right? And interest rates are controlled, and the central bank will set them, and they will be zero or negative globally, I think. And they won't move much. I think there are limits to how negative you can go. I don't think you'll go beyond 1%, okay? 
Credit spreads, yeah, I could basically lend differently to Walmart or or to Jeff Malik. Yeah. Um, but even then, the reason central banks stepped in and not only buy government bonds, but they buy corporate bonds, it's because they want to uh, short circuit the credit process and they cannot rely on me buying the treasury of the bank and hopefully the bank will lend it. Yeah, they yeah. just go and say, screw that. I'm lending directly to these people. And even if it's in the, in the uh, investment grade space, the higher quality firms, obviously it creates a big difference because if your uh, top telecom is able to find itself from the, the, the Fed, then the number two or three in line benefit from that, right? So it creates a domino effect. And then the inflation side, I think, is the degree of freedom. And I think this is, it's, it's pretty obvious. I mean, it's, but the, the problem and the sad thing is, this, this is the reason why we have inequality. And this is the reason why, you know, if you read a bit of, or listen to Ray Dalio, he talks about all these things of, of the repeat of the, uh, effectively the, the mistakes of the 30s and, and how yeah. they, they got us into trouble. But it's, it's happening. And I think the sad thing is, you know, you can see people unhappy, people losing purchase power. Uh, they've been told that there's no inflation, but they go to the supermarket and they can afford less and less or schools or houses. And, and these people are not happy. And, and, and of course, I think, you know. Uh, yeah, well, I think in the US it. we see it most in healthcare, right? Of like well. I can still afford food, housing, a little problematic, but healthcare is just a straight line up. Yeah, um, and this is this is leading to inequality. Is leading to many issues, which they they can't point at who is who is the, who's to blame, right? We're always looking for scapegoats and right, Trump was looking after China. China is China is the guilty guys. Like, come on, guys, don't. This is all coming from from these things, and 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 central banks. Uh, I'm reading this this new book from Mervyn King now. Uh, quite interesting. The uh, I only just started, but it looks looks interesting and on on the decision making process. Um, and and it's it's just very humbling how his former governor of the Bank of England openly saying, you know, our decision making abilities and tools. We have no idea what's happening. We have no idea <laughs> what we're doing, and we have no idea what will happen. And let's face it, you know, all these. It's it's fascinating, you know. He, he calls it. He's uh, the former head of the central. Yeah, yeah, radical. Right. He, he he's, he's broken up. He's broken he's ranks and said we have no idea. Oh yeah, big time, big time. He he wrote uh, you know the alchemy of finance, and yeah, he's yeah. a very critical guy of MMT, and and I, I think it's fascinating and and it's interesting, but it, it's really all these things that are happening. It's not. It's just people are worried about how we do we. Eat, you know, it's hand to mouth. It's how do we avoid the next company blowing up? How do we? And you're taking these mini steps that are taking you into an abyss. And back right, to no your one's question, planting a tree for 15 years from now. Yeah, back back to your question. I think it's it becomes an issue of, um, uh, you know, how how we are. Are we solving the problems? And the answer is no. We are doing four things. We're delaying the problems. So when you take excessive debt, you're kicking the can down the road. So you're delaying things. Second of all, you're transferring the problems. So effectively, the devaluation of the dollar 
it's transferring the problem through competitive evaluation to Europe and others, right? We saw this clearly in 08 and how Europe blew up partially because of uh, the, the, the weaker dollar, et cetera. The third thing that is happening is that we're transforming the problem from bubbles into inflation. But all these three things, delaying, transferring, and transforming, are actually enlarging the problem. And this is the, this is the thing. It's like today... Enlarging it in the future. Exactly. So the, the, the issue is anybody who's lived through, uh, you know, what, what our grandparents or whatever had to, to live through, uh, realize that, that that's the evil problem. If you ask somebody in Argentina, but we are foolishly thinking, oh, that will never happen to us. And of course, it sounds like science fiction today, but the path we're taking and some of the measures that are being taken, it's are, are, are brutal. And, and this is the reason why, you know, I'm not hitting on Bitcoin uh, whatsoever. I just think, of course, people say, screw that. I mean, who wants to yeah. keep their money into, into dollars? Let's just go somewhere else. But I think ultimately... I want to get an MMT on here and have you guys debate it. Because, right, they would come... You could get 10 people on here to say, hey, it, all, all that debt, all those deficits don't matter. We can wipe it away. We can remove ones and zeros from the digital balance sheet at the Fed. Um, everything's fine. Right. And as proof, they'll point to we did all this in 08 and everything is fine right now. No, they didn't, because uh, all, all we did in 08 was uh, test the limits of monetary policy. We did something that was within the rules of the game, which was let's bring interest rates to zero, print money, lend it to the governments and hope, cross our fingers that their actions will actually work and they will be able to repay things back. But let me be very clear, QE1 was needed, okay? If, if you, the, the way to put it simply for those who are less familiar with, uh, with, with macro, you know, you basically sat all the seven banks and said, okay, how big is your problem? 100 billion, yours, 150, yours, 200, whatever. They sum it up, 600 billion, and they said, okay, I'm going to print 700 billion and give it to these guys to cover the hole. That action was needed because not stopping that snowball would have resulted in, in much bigger consequences. Okay. And it didn't have, uh, it, was, it was offsetting deflationary pressures and it kind of increased the monetary base by a somewhat not marginal amount, but it's what it is. The problem becomes when Europe defends itself because the euro went to 150, 160. So we need to do it and we even need to go further. And Japan and the other. And so as everybody does the same, this is subject to the law of diminishing returns. It's like an asymptotic process, right? Where yeah. you have to print bigger and bigger quantities of money for, for smaller and smaller and smaller benefits. And this is the reason why QE3, if you remember, was called QE infinity. Because the market was like, come on, how much you're gonna do? Five trillion, whatever, yeah. two minutes, it was gone. It's like, no, no, we're gonna do whatever it takes. And, and that's the dynamic we're in, this whatever it takes. Well, that's the narrative now, right? We'll, we'll but, do whatever. But what happened, exactly, but what happened then was monetary, was really on the monetary side with zero interest rates. What we've seen since then is negative interest rates. It's lending not just to governments, but also to, to, uh, to corporates. And, and we are seeing effectively money printing, which is directly being given to consumers uh, in the form of checks and grants and things that will be 
never pay back. So yeah. the perception, it's going fiscal. The perception that nothing's happening, it's stupid. It's the equivalent of going to Chernobyl, you know, after a nuclear accident and sitting there taking pictures and saying, you see, nothing's happening. And within yeah. two days, to Chernobyl, yeah, to, within two days, all your teeth have gone, you're green and uh, it, it doesn't work, right? So meaning green meaning that you glow you're yeah, yeah. Dead. you're dead right not that <laughs> so so in that sense there's a delayed effect with many of these things i think it's naive to think that you can just solve these things by by just printing and, and removing zeros something's given and yes you may resolve one problem but we are delaying transferring and transforming and on a global scale this is something that i don't think is as easy to um to solve in fact i think it's 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 getting worse but it's, it's gonna generating. no matter even if it works long term there's going to be second order effects that nobody's thinking about as well right absolutely so we've identified all the problems in the world maybe not all of them but one, <laughs> one really big one so talk to us about what you're doing at quadriga how you kind of tackle these uh thoughts that you have and and what your risk and reward payoff is if you get some of these ideas correct? Yeah, look, I, 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 what, what, I've, what I've done is, I, I think going back to my point on uh, portfolio construction, I use, I use this analogy of, uh, of a soccer team. I think, um, you know, th this investment game, um, I think Warren Buffett uh, describes it. He says there's only two rules, you know, one, uh, and never lose money, and, and two, Never forget rule number one, right? That's that's everybody knows that, which is a bit cynical and not entirely true because they can lose fifty or sixty percent in a in a big crisis. But I think what he really means with those two rules, which is the way I would translate them, is this is a game of capital preservation and compounding on capital preservation. Because if if you lose ninety percent of your money, you need to go up, you know, from ten to a, you need to go a thousand percent. So effectively to do that if you bring the football analogy we we can talk about most people think that investing is really about making money so jeff here's a hundred grand invest it for me make me money and that means capital gains income gains whatever now in reality that's what i would describe as a as a striker you know, you have people in the team that are responsible for scoring goals. They're re responsible for, for making money, right? But the team also has to protect the capital. They need to protect the goal, etc. So there are people in the team that are more goalkeepers, defenders, and, 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 and midfielders, people who generate alpha. Um, so I am the goalkeeper. My strategy is designed to do very well during crisis. Okay, it's based on the anti-bubble concept, which is the title of my second book, which is a, an idea that I coined. It's almost like, a, you, know, it's, you know, if you think about bubbles, bubbles are about uh, asset prices that are artificially high based on a, on a misconception, based on a false belief. Um, so what, what I said is, look, uh, yeah, misconceptions can distort prices, but not only with artificially high valuations, you could also have artificially low valuations. So an anti-bubble has three dimensions. The first dimension would be assets that are grossly artificially cheap based on a misconception. The second is, you know, 
bubbles and anti-bubbles are like distorted mirror images of each other because they're, they're effectively two reflections of the same misconception. So they can uh, think about, uh, so by construction, the, the, the moment the misconception is understood and the bubble bursts is the exact same moment that the anti-bubble reflates. And, and third, uh, there's an element of, of respremia because, uh, you know, if you think, for example, about or a good relationship is the VIX and the SMP. The, the SMP and the VIX, in my view, are a bubble anti-bubble relationship because you have artificially low volatility can actually contribute to artificially high equity prices, right? So ultimately, around the framework, the macro ideas we discussed, the concept of anti-bubble, we basically invest, we have a strategy that looks for assets that are anti-bubble, anti-crisis. They are, they do well during the crisis. These are things like the VIX or gold or inflation or, um, or, or many, right? You could buy puts on the S&P. Effectively, yeah, it's by yeah. construction, that's my mandate. So we were the but best. You're, uh, you're we were hesitant the best. to call yourself like a tail risk fund. Yeah, except that tail risk is slightly different. Um, they... The, the goalkeeper is is a bit more, uh, you know, the tail, tail risk funds will do well in very extreme scenarios in those very, very small tails. Uh, we're designed to do very well in those tails, but we are also designed to do, we were up, I mean, uh, yesterday, for example, we're up 4%, four you know, with, with the uh, S&P down uh, and gold up. Um, it, it's, we, you don't need a 30% move in the S&P yeah, yeah. to, to make money. But as a goalkeeper, the beauty is, is how the team works. So I think ultimately my, my recommendation to people is uh, and, uh, build portfolios that are well diversified. I think one of the key consequences from my thesis and one of the key uh, things that we've seen is, is false diversification. So the risk of false diversification is the fact that when people build a portfolio, they have, you know, their long equities, credit, high yield, EM, commodities, whatever, private equity, private debt. And you say, you know, I'm diversified. Yeah. But the reality is that when, excuse my French, shit hits the fan and boom, uh, we have a Q418 or a Q1 2020, turns out that every single position in your portfolio collapsed at the same time. So the reality is that you were not diversified. You had false diversification. You thought you were diversified, but you weren't. We were the best hedge fund in the world in February. Effectively, we did well. But uh, the, the idea is that you, um, you have something that when the team does well, you have strikers. When the team needs it, you have goalkeepers. And then, so I think the process has really three steps. Step one is you need to decide how you're going to play. Okay? But you can't play with 11 strikers. You can't play with 11 goalkeepers. You need to have a balanced team. The second step is you need to pick your players, okay? Do I want my striker to be the S&P or the NASDAQ or whatever? Do I want my goalkeeper to be the VIX or my strategy or whatever? Uh, and the third thing, and this is hugely important, is how you rebalance the team. And so instead of fighting the volatility of the market, instead of fighting the stupidity of the market, harvest what, what you want is to take advantage of it. So. If for the sake of argument, your team was 50% strikers, 50% goalkeepers, let's say the S&P and my strategy. And there are periods where, you know, the markets will move and, you know, we had the S&P at 3,400 and the VIX was at 11, right? Prior to, to the collapse. And then the market goes to 2,200 and 80% VIX. 
And then, you know, now we're back to 3,700 and, and the VIX actually holding well and looking like it might, it might go again. But this process, if you did a basket that is passive, just 50-50, you would earn X. But if you're able to rebalance back to 50-50, so look, the market's going a bit crazy. The strikers are super expensive. I'll take some profits and buy some uh, goalkeepers and vice versa. The, the strikers are not very cheap, etc. cetera. Uh, you can actually achieve incremental returns, which are hugely relevant. And so ultimately, investing for me is not about having a crystal ball. It's not about, oh, I'm smarter than you. This is going to go up tomorrow, whatever. It's about build your strategy. So have a balanced team with strikers, defenders, and goalkeepers. And pick your players that do their job and rebalance. And if you do that, you make money whilst you sleep at night because you will always be, uh, I think, balanced and on the right position. The problem comes when you're either, you have the wrong strategy, you only have strikers, or you, you build your team, you think you have defenders and they, they turn out to be a CTA that is max long at the top. And right. Yeah, or I'm, I'm in equity and private equity. I'm diversified. Well, yeah, and, 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 two and, different and kinds or, of or, or you don't develop and then, uh, it, it, you know, you don't rebalance and then your, your 50-50 has become 80-20. Yeah. And by the time the market collapses, you, you, you everything goes. So but just to be clear, you're not, you're not, you don't have the beta. You're not the striker. You're just the, the goalkeeper. We're the goalkeeper. We're, we're, our strategy has three pillars. We, we invest in, in gold. We're big believers in gold. We think it'll be three to 5,000 in the next three to five years. I, we believe in treasuries and, uh, and tips, but the most uh, exciting part of the strategy is, is the third bucket, which is insurance, uh, options. Uh, we only buy options. This is something that differentiates us. We don't sell options. So the risk is controlled by the premium. And we buy stuff that is five, 10, 20 times premium in terms of payout. And we do this in a totally asset class agnostic manner. So we spend five to 7% per annum, we have options in 2021, 22, 23, and, and beyond. And, and we do all sorts of stuff, you know, things that will benefit if there's a crisis, you know, VIX higher, gold higher, equities lower, China lower, whatever. Yeah, and you and, have, and it's a unique strategy there. So it's what termed complex options, right? So you're not just buying puts on the S&P or calls on gold or whatnot. No, that's right. It's a bit like, yeah. Uh, Insurance options markets are insurance markets. And, you know, I, I give you a simple example to show you uh, what I mean. Yeah. When, I, when I lived in Singapore, I was working for the bank and then I, I, I left, I set up on my own and I took over the insurance from the bank. I had a very comprehensive package and they quoted me and I'm just going to make the numbers up. But for the sake of argument, I have a, a, a family and stuff. It's like, okay, Diego, that's going to be $30,000 a year. Like, wow, yeah. that's a lot of money. And I say, yeah, but you have global coverage. And it's like, yeah, but I, <laughs> so what does that mean? It's like, yeah, for example, do you ever go to the US? And I was like, uh, yeah, but uh, on business, right? It's like, oh, that's fine. If you don't go to the US, then it's 10 grand. And I was like, what? <laughs> 20K out of the 30K insurance from a global insurance was attributed to the US. So if you buy a vanilla option, you're buying health insurance in any country, any time, any whatever. Yeah. But if you fine tune that insurance and you say, look, I don't live in the US. I have, if I go to the US, then I'm, maybe I'll get my insurance for a week with my Amex or whatever. But 
that's my point. So when you actually fine tune the markets and you say, look, yes, I want, you know, I'll give you one example. Uh, you, you could say, uh, I want insurance in case S&P goes down 5% and the market will pay you three to one. And you say, well, I also like insurance if gold goes up 5% and the market will also pay you three to one, okay? What if I want insurance when gold goes up and equities go down at the same time? And here the market might pay you 12 to one. So you're not only, you're basically uh, reducing the premium, increasing the payoff and improving the carry by fine tuning a distribution because the market says, Diego, if gold is up, equities will be up. That's kind of, if, if the markets were uncorrelated, the, the implied correlation in the market was zero, theoretically, you, your three to one and three to one should be nine to one. Yeah. Okay. But if you actually get to play with better odds because the market has a different view on correlation, then uh, you can get better things. So the fact that we do more, let's say, customized insurance doesn't mean it's riskier. It means it's less likely to pay off according to the, the, the models, yeah. but it's cheaper and it's more explosive and potentially better carry. And I, and that, I view them as like parlays in sports betting. Is that similar? Affair? Yeah. Um, I don't, I'm not an expert there, but yes. Yeah. Yes. Well, it's instead of I'm going to bet on one team to win, I'm going to bet on right in the odds are Absolutely. negative 250. If I parlay that with two other teams, the odds go in my favor. But as you're saying, it's much less likely to happen. You have to get all three right. That's right. So this is an interesting point, though, because a professional sports gambler would basically say never do parlays. But they're also <laughs> right. But they're also fixed odds, and the the house has it, you know, skewed heavily in their favor. But how do you how do you weigh that? So you're basically betting that your probability calculations are better than the the banks. No, the the, the first of all there's a supply and demand of correlation. So what happens is many of these structures, you asked me at the beginning, you know, do you work with corporates or whatever? Some people, let's say that in Korea, a Korean bank wants to do a, a gold product. They want the gold product denominated in Korean won, not in US dollars. So the gold option that they buy pays the upside of gold in dollars, which is that's what people see. Oh, gold is up 20% in dollars. Yeah. But they want it paid in, in Korean won. So in a scenario where the Korean won is, is gone up or down, let's say 20% relative to the dollar, uh, even if gold is up 20%, maybe if the won is down 20%, the payoff would be zero. So right. to hedge that correlation, uh, the bank offers this product. They obviously do it with a nice spread on correlation, but the client gets what they want. The bank protects itself. And now the bank has a correlation uh, risk so they go to people like us and say or the other way around i will generate this but i'll say look uh diego correlation can only be between minus one and plus one someone just did it at, at plus 0.9 i've done my full size but i'm beyond my limits i'm happy to do this at mids or whatever get me out and uh and so we, we only do this when it makes sense but the key thing i want to say is that we don't create more customized options for the sake of making them more complex. We do them because they add more value, okay? In some cases, 
you know, it's like uh, in some cases it feels stupid because the, the, the market is giving you better odds with things that I use. I like to use one example. I use soccer. But, uh, you know, what are the odds of uh, Barcelona winning the league and the market says two to one? Okay. And you say, what are the odds of Barcelona scoring more than 100 goals in the season? Or winning the league and scoring more than 100 goals in the season? And, and they will give you six to one. And it's like, uh, it's the same trade. <laughs> if you're yeah. going to win the league. They're going to so, score that many goals. So, so you're like, and then Messi will do better than, and you're like, it's the same trade. But instead of doing it at two to one, you might be getting it at six to one or 10 to one. So what's the point of doing it at two to one? Uh, of course, it's not the same trade, exactly. But yeah. my point is that what for you, might look like the same trade you could do either risking less money or getting better odds but either way but the, in the world of somewhere options, in there by you or the bank is a, a real probability of that happening right of yeah this the, the probability is look uh you can look at the probability let's look at something super simple right gold and euro okay let's look at the probability distribution of gold you have an options market very developed. Let's look at the euro dollar. Same thing. Probably the distribution options market. Okay. How about gold in euro? What's the probability of gold in euro? Okay. It's interesting because the, the correlations are actually very unstable. So you could have a situation where gold and euro are moving the same way and this looks normal. And so if gold and euro are moving the same way, it means that gold in euros is not moving at all. So the implied volatility of gold in euros could look really really low but you know that in a crisis two things happen one is volatility might explode and second correlations might break so something as uh, gold in euro if you take advantage of very high implied volatility and low vol what happens is when the crisis comes this thing becomes super explosive because you have two things compounding in the same direction and this is what you want because I, I, as an engineer, and um, you know, we, I look at the parallels, the parallels between, you know, some of the stuff, science and and, and markets, and we, you know, there's a lots of lots of them, but I think volatility is a bit like fluid mechanics. You know, you go from a laminar regime to to a turbulent regime, mm -hmm. and so in that sense, this these jumps in in behavior are something that the when the market makes when the bank makes your market on correlation. Is giving you some sort of implied correlation how they think the market's going to behave. But in, in a binary world where you're either laminar or explosive or, or turbulent, if you're able to accumulate correlation at laminar prices, when the crisis comes, you get this massive payoff. And that's, in a way, what we try to do. Of course, if so this you're crisis... Almost yeah, you're almost long volatility through the volatility of the correlation, not the volatility of as the... As well. Price. Both. Yeah, both. But it's a fixed payout, right? Well, you have you can you can construct these things as you wish. You can do okay. you can do. Uh, so I usually hear you quoting it ten to one, fifteen to one, but that's just as example. So some of your options will have convexity, and they can pay out more as the trade goes in your correct, career. correct. The, the the five to one, ten to one, twenty to one are digital payouts. So yeah. it's literally like in sports. You have a you know you will get a hundred dollars payout and we buy them at or $1 payout and you get them, you buy them at 10 cents on the dollar. So that would be a 10 to one. 
And so, and, but you're not seeking out anything in the world. Like if S and P goes up and Tesla goes up, they're all still within your exactly uh, mandate with your thesis of, I want it to be protective. I want it to be crisis performer. Exactly. So that means that for example, on the equity side, we have a bias to be uh, long puts on the short term, but from an inflation perspective, we're actually long calls, let's say contingent on pretty cool rate, pretty cool trade. Uh, equities higher, rates lower. Okay, that's a trade that we did last year uh, at very, very good odds, 10 to 1, because the consensus of the market and the implied correlation is, is the opposite and because of the shape of the forwards. And, and, and that's a five-year trade, but it's an inflationary trade that will benefit if equities are higher and, and rates stay where they are or lower. That, that uh, you know, 30, above 3,200 and below 50 basis points in the five-year, um, that, that's 10 to 1. Um, and just to be clear for our listeners, this isn't, uh, I can't go on my Interactive no. Brokers account and click on these options. So you're calling around to different prime brokers, you're getting quotes. Uh, how does that whole process work? No, I used to run those desks. Uh, I know exactly how they work. They, you need a uh, special documentation, things like ISDAS. Yeah. Uh, we we custom we do this, you know, customized to our needs in terms of size and maturity and strikes. And in some cases, we are the market. I mean, we we are uh, in, in a way the providers of liquidity and and but as you said, always within the angle of what our mandate is. So my the way I understand our mandate is: Can you protect your capital? Can you make money in a crisis? And can you, uh, pro- you know, uh, do it in the with the best carry possible? Right. That that's the goal. Um, and 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 within that, you know, we think that uh, gold and treasuries and options are are ni- nice way to to achieve this. And so we can't. And we don't just do whatever we want. We wake up in the morning and it looks like this thing is, you know, oh, now we like the Brazilian right, it's a 40 Real. to one. And I think the odds are 80 to one, I'm going to buy. Um, it's, so- it's always biased to, to, to crisis, pain during a crisis. But you need but- to, you, you could hedge yourself and find ways that hopefully will keep you alive. And is the crisis uh, skewed towards a US crisis, towards S&P? We do, we do. For practical reasons, we do, and uh, it's been um, um, it's it's part of liquidity. It's part of it's a global index. Um, We would have been better off buying puts on other things. (laughs) most of most of the time because it's been a great striker to fight against. But uh, (laughs) but uh, but yeah, it's it's uh, that old German guy. It's it's part of the decision of, of or the discretion that we have when we look to to buy those puts. And when you say buy puts, they're often like a synthetic put structure, right? No, we could do listed vanilla. If it's cheap enough, we could do other things. So it doesn't mean we don't have to. This is like in football, you know, you can only score with your right leg. No, (laughs) maybe I can score with my left leg or with a header. It depends where the ball is coming. But if, if you put a player and he can only do forehands in tennis, that's like you can only buy vanilla listed. Okay, that yeah. means probably Rafa Nadal would still beat everybody six love six love. Uh, yeah, <laughs> just with four hands because he can run around. But most of most humans would uh, would struggle. I think my point is, you know, sometimes it's better to do something vanilla. Sometimes it's 
for example, in the VIX, we only do vanilla stuff listed. But yeah. for FX or gold or equities, you can actually do pretty cool stuff in other forms. Do you think that's VIX because the banks just haven't caught up yet? They're too scared of the, the spreads are too big? Multiple reasons, you know, liquidity, uh, yeah. And also yeah. the ability to structure this stuff. As you, as you pointed out earlier, you know, the, the bid offers, the capacity, you know, you can't do this in anything we, you need. The ability to get in, to get in, you need the ability to get out, and you need to be able to do it at the right price. And you know, for our sort of size, where we have billions of um, this kind of insurance, then uh, you you, you want to make sure that, you know th these things are liquid and uh, you know, both on the way in and out. And that's interesting. So, you're how many of these are there at any one time in the portfolio? Dozens, hundreds? Oh yeah, we have probably about a hundred. Uh, although uh, they fall within clusters. So of, of, uh, we, we try to avoid having the exact same expiry strike, et cetera, so, yeah. or counterparty. So we may have a few, but I would say probably about 20 trades, 20 themes, kind of uh, 20 differentiated trades over a hundred lines. So yeah. some of them is the same trade over a different maturity or strike. But and the maturities same. are going out, you said, 30 All years. All the way out 30 years, yeah. 30 years. So yeah. how does that work with an investor? You need, does the investor need to be around for 30 years? Or no, are you going to no. mark the market over whatever period? No, the market to market, I mean, 30 years, that option is a, is a small part. I would say, uh, you know, everything we do is very liquid. We are a daily liquidity fund. So uh, about 80% of the fund is, let's say, gold and treasuries. 20% yeah. is in options. Okay. Yeah. Out of, out, of, out, of that, out of that 20, you know, uh, at least 15%. So 95% of the fund is inside of three years. Yeah. And, but even though it's just 20% in the options, is that's going to give the biggest kick in a crisis? Like yeah. That, most that, of the that, made, uh, that could be, if you, you have 20% that, let's say an average of 10 to one, that could make you 200%. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Um, I love it. Anything else on the parlays? So you mentioned the double, the double digital. That just means it's a fixed payout, and then the other options have normal payouts. It's just two conditions. Too a digital is you know uh, Rafa wins or loses. What are the odds? Yeah. And the dual digital is Rafa wins and Roger wins. So right, right. Two, two, two matches. And if if the market thinks that. Uh, they're uncorrelated, which probably are. <laughs> yeah. You should be, but but if the market's telling you that they are strongly negatively correlated, or strongly positively correlated, if Rafa wins for sure, Feather will win. Then it depends. But uh, but yeah, you could do. Think about this as Lego. You know, you have these pieces, and ultimately we're we're playing with probability distributions. We're trying to uh, identify value and, and, and buy optionality that hopefully will will pay and that you know will pay a lot when we need it and 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 that if you're wrong it will cost you less and it will bleed less while you wait but it's not an easy job i mean we had a very strong q1 we had a difficult q2 uh, still finish the year up nicely but you know yeah i was gonna not, you're, you're i was gonna ask you about the the difficult second half of the year what was you think it was a change in environment or uh, what, what happened? I mean, it's um, obviously it was, 
in hindsight, you know, I think uh, I remember doing some uh, similar interview in in, uh, in 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 a big event, and uh, SMP was breaking three thousand, and everybody was like, "What the hell? This is like everybody had been shorting the thing from 2,500, 2,700, yeah. 3,000. This is nuts." And 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 I was like, "Is you know, it's just I mean, it's just a number, right?" But um, but it was. Now at 3,700, nobody's blinking, and just a few months ago at 3,000. I mean, we've we've had some pretty major move. Uh, it's happened synchronously. I think uh, the, the one thing that hurt us a bit was the, the big move in gold, which is honestly, I think, a, a bit of a an anomaly, or I, I, I don't see it. I can see that the whole market's telling you the dollar is worthless, Bitcoin is worth infinity, yet gold is useless and, and worthless. And real the treasuries are telling you a story real yields are telling you a story and and inflation is telling you a story and the one thing that that didn't add up was gold and we're starting to see that reverse a little bit so i think in uh, we'll, we'll see how how the the movie ends but we we are we think there's been a major cleanup in gold hopefully uh that part of the of the book will will make it back uh and some of the other insurance you know yeah, I think there were lots of good ideas about outcome. I think we, yeah. you know, who and knows? The, were the options priced higher too because of the high volatility? So you were. Yeah, we, we you know, we it's it's part of the game. I mean, think about this. It's a bit like insurance, right? Um, yeah, the hurricane had just come through. They're going to price the hurricane. Insurance. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So ultimately, you want to be. This is a game in the in the long term. You want to be. You want to manage your risk. Be focused on what you're doing and, and our strategy uh, I think is, is predictable in the sense that you know what you own yes some of this insurance as it goes down and you rebalance the portfolio back and you buy more insurance and things keep going down and down and down you, you can have uh, it can hurt but it's also uh, the same process that made us you know very significant returns in other uh, periods yeah. and so we're very focused on the process and how we do it and so you're not changing anything you're not saying the market no we're, we're we are we're just focused it's like a goalkeeper you know you you there are parts of the match when everything's happening the other side sometimes you get attacked and uh right. you're part of your you're team player we're trying to do our job the best we can i think we uh we're proud of what we've done and and we're very appreciative of and the, the, the gold the gold piece so you lost on the gold piece but it's not always long Right, we have a big bias on gold. Yeah, long long bias. We have a we have a core. We, we are not pretending to be timing or per, having a crystal ball. Now we think it's going up. Now it's going down. Our mandate is to be long gold, long treasuries, long options. It's just can you be it in the smartest way possible? Okay. But investors know what they own. We're not so a you, black box. So you might be a little uh, more weighted towards silver or something like as a proxy to gold. We have, we have we're primarily driven by gold, but we have the ability to do uh, relative value and options and other things. But I, I believe gold is the one, even if silver will be way more explosive. I, I about I mean most of our precious metals exposure is is uh, linked to gold. And what? How do you right? So you take like an ensemble approach in the options sleeve silo, but then you have a third of it in gold, right? Like why not have gold just be part of the overall? uh diversifier like it seems overweight to gold well gold is central to our thesis um and i and, and i think gold will play a big role and um but 
a, a delta one, just a long position on the ETF may or may not be, or miners may or may not be the most efficient way. I mean, what we do is we have a core allocation, roughly about 50% into precious, 20 to 30 in treasuries and tips and 20 in options roughly. And that's, yeah, we have the ability to rotate and whatever, but that that's, that's fine. But the 20% in options, if you link it to gold and others, it can actually be way, way more explosive. So we're hoping, hopefully superior to just, uh, and complementary uh, perhaps to other, other ways to do gold keeping. But ours is focused on anti-bubbles, anti-crisis, and within gold, um, treasuries, tips, and volatility, the VIX and insurance are... are and it's just US treasuries and tips? Yes. Got it. Um, I've, I've had a long love-hate relationship with gold, so you'll have to convince me to come to the, <laughs> come to the dark side, right? Because yeah. 20 years, right as I was coming up in the business, 20 years, it was just flat to, you know, just went nowhere. Even it went down for those 20 years. So, but yeah. the last, what has it been? Last 20 years? It's been pretty good. Yeah. Look, um, I think it's, it's here to stay. Um, it's going to be interesting. I think uh, all this debate of gold versus Bitcoin and whatever is maybe put some people off, others. I, um, right in, I think we have a, it's going to be a, an important asset going forward. Um, and, and I think as I, because of many of the dynamics that we discussed, uh, I think it's going to gain an even bigger role. So it's a, it's a good, uh, I think the risk reward is, is good, particularly uh, with everything that's happening on the currency front. But yeah, time will tell. I think the, the book is uh, goes into a lot of detail into many of the arguments that have, if anything, strengthened. But look, I think we cover a lot of ground. I hope for hopefully sure. you guys found it uh, of interested, uh, interest. If anybody wants to reach out, uh, feel free. You have two minutes to go through a quick favorite section. Sure. We won't have any debates. We just asked some favorites here. So, um, yeah, thanks for being with us. I'll go through real quick. Uh, favorite team, Real Madrid, Atletico, Barcelona? Atletico. Atletico, <laughs> all right. Uh, favorite investing book outside your own? Full by Randomness. All right, love it. Um, favorite place you've lived outside of Madrid? Singapore. Singapore. Never been. I'll get back there. Um, and are you, uh, do you consume podcasts or just participate on them? You have a favorite podcast? I participate mostly. <laughs> <laughs> all right. I'll give you some to listen to. Thank you. Uh, favorite Spanish athlete of all time. Rafa Nadal. Yeah. He's unbelievable. Is he still going? Is he going to retire? Oh, I love him. Yeah. It's my, my fourth son, according to my wife. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and lastly, favorite Star Wars character. Yoda. Yoda. All right. <laughs> all knowing, all seeing. Uh, awesome. Well, we'll put links to uh, all your stuff in the show notes as well as to the books. And uh, we'll talk to you soon, Diego. Thank you so much. It's been an all absolute right. pleasure. Guys, uh, much health and all the best in, uh, in 2021. It's been a great pleasure. All you the too, best. You Thank you, guys. Take care. will be in the episode description of this channel. Follow us on Twitter at RCMAlt 
and visit our website to read our blog or subscribe to our newsletter at rcmalts.com. If you liked our show, introduce a friend and show them how to subscribe. And be sure to leave comments. We'd love to hear from you.